deprivation to the point of limiting access to resources or slowing economic progress would have a big impact. I think the breakthroughs come when you have innovation, a forward-looking approach using technology, using creativity. There is a mathematical calculation that models the good and there is also a, a calculation that models the right. And if you extend those calculations out into infinity, those two curves actually meet. They are only different if you take a short-term view. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Extrospective Podcast with your host Zach Villeneuve-Snell. In this week's episode, I am joined by Vicky Boyton-Lee, who is an ex-director at Shell, who now is a non-executive director and board advisor, speaking on topics such as clean tech, decarbonisation, energy, mobility and leadership. In this conversation, we touch on some of the major talking points from her time at Shell, why she is so interested in sustainability and how these big oil companies are actually far more forward thinking than we could possibly imagine when it comes to the sustainability and net zero targets. As always, discussing something with such a global nature can sometimes feel daunting and we ground the conversation both at the macro level and also at the individual, holding up various competing interests and perspectives and striving for a balanced, nuanced take, hopefully bringing together parties who think that the global elites are taking away our petrol cars versus those that think we should return to the Stone Ages, not have any children so we can save the planet. We try and hold those two things together and make the compelling case for why business and sustainability can go hand in hand moving into the future. If you do find this episode particularly interesting, then please do share it with a friend. And without further ado, welcome to the show, Vicky Boyton-Lee. Vicky Boyton-Lee, welcome to the Extrospective podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Zach. Pleasure to be here. If I was to ask you how many hands you use on the steering wheel whilst you drive, how would you respond? Actually, I have a very bad habit. I drive with one hand on the steering wheel, but don't tell anyone that. <laughs> in my defense, I did drive a manual car in a very congested city for about the first 10 years. So it's a habit to just improve my efficiency be able to steer, quickly change gears. I drive an automatic now, so keeping both hands on the wheel now is easy. And of course, the reason why I ask you that is because you used that as an as analogy in, in a LinkedIn post about habits generally in and out of work. And I was wondering what, what some of those habits are. Well, um, you know, in my work, I've worked with a lot of people from different cultures. So one habit I developed was to ask people how they prefer to communicate rather than I assume it. Um, it's not good to assume that silence, for example, implies agreement or, or worse, that it implies a lack of interest. So that's one habit I've, I've developed. Um, I think I also developed the habit to be early, something I picked up from my dad, who hates being late for anything. Um, I think it's about being respectful of other people's time. Um, in fact, I used to have a fairly successful technique um, of how to be time efficient. In During my executive career, when I used to work 60 or 70 hours a week, I got very annoyed when people showed up late to a meeting 
and even more annoyed when the meeting would run over. So I remember using a technique to start my meetings at a quarter past the hour and then end them after 45 minutes. So, you know, say 10, 15 to 11, because most people would have finished their previous meeting at 10, so they'd be on time to mine. And then they'd have their next meeting at 11, so they would leave mine on time as well. It worked really well. We actually have a similar thing in the civil service. I've just been doing a placement year and all meetings start at five past. I think it's just to allow that rollover. And if you see someone's put a meeting in the calendar for on the hour, you know, something's gone wrong or <laughs> kind of almost have to pull, pull one up on it. Um, and I'm sure we'll delve into more of that habits and the lessons you've learned in your career and um, the kind of direction you've been in more specifically later on. Um, but obviously I would have introduced at the beginning of the podcast before we started recording but something that's been so central to your career, as far as I understand, is sustainability. Uh, I want to understand in today, so in 2023, why is that important to you? Well, it's, um, I would say two things, duty and opportunity. So if I talk about duty, I, I think all economy, all human development, all peace depends on natural capital and i believe it's not wise and not fair to take from nature at the rate and in the way that we do today you know it's kind of borrowing from your future or even worse borrowing from other people's futures you know to fund your life today and you know i grew up in malaysia i was lucky enough to have access to good education healthcare meaningful work and I know not everyone has this, and, and they should. So I do think it's my duty because of the opportunities I've had to, you know, to live and work both in, do that in a sustainable way, but also to have a positive impact through what I do. So that's, that's really the duty side of the balance. Opportunity, I think it's, it's the biggest opportunity of our time, not just for business, but for governments, for society. I mean, how many chances have we had to really make um, a lasting shift you know, for that develops a nation or increases wealth? So I think it's, it's a huge opportunity as well. Can you reflect on specifically where you began to reflect on this sort of thing? Because I think from a, from a young person's perspective, unless we're exposed to this sort of stuff, we kind of just go through life and take everything as it is and we, we don't think about the broader stuff i think you know as children particularly we are quite egocentric so where was the shift you reckon if you can like look back at your childhood and go actually no i was taught this lesson lesson to be selfless or i, I loved animals or nature or where, where did that come from i don't think there's one moment in time and as a kid growing up in malaysia i just had no understanding of these challenges when i grew up as a kid there was a rice field outside the area where I lived, you know, so I would see water buffaloes every morning. So this was, this was just normal to me. I was surrounded by some of the best beaches um, in the world. We have fantastic rainforests. So I think it's only as I ventured outside the country, as I started to get into my working life, that I understood actually it isn't, it isn't like this everywhere. Um, and it is not going to stay like this for a very long time in the future. 
I think most people today are more exposed um, to global cultures and they travel more. I didn't. I, I stepped on the plane for the first time, probably at age 20 something, 22, 23, which is not common now. Most people really do go out a lot more. So it was only when I saw how things are outside and started to understand the impact that that will have on the things that we've come to take for granted. That's when I realized that we have to be working and living differently. Off the back of that, would you say that life was more sustainable in the environment that you were growing up? Like the the kind of the way people would live and consume and things like that compared to then when you got on the plane and went to, to other places and you, you can kind of compare and contrast those two things? Oh, for sure. I think we used to buy local. Supply chains were very short. Um, we used to use everything that came out of the chicken that my mum would buy from the market. It's not like that now. Um, we have much more of a an economy where labour costs are the most expensive. Material costs have become so low. It's just cheaper to buy new furniture than to go repair the old ones. It's like that with, with everything. So I do think we have moved from a stage that we made better use of the resources that we had. Um, but of course, there are many benefits with what we have now. You know, things have become more affordable, so more people can access them. So I can't say it was all good in the old times. Um, there's a lot that has progressed now. It's like we need to really take the good and the direction that society has moved on to uh, raise a lot of people out of poverty and raise a lot of people's living standards whilst also reflecting on not exploiting and looking at ways to to do that forward, I suppose. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're, you're stepping outside of where you grew up and you're going out into the world. What did the early beginnings of work for you look like? I mean, obviously, the, the top headline thing is your your career at Shell, but uh, was there anything before that and, and what led to that, that career moving to Shell? No, actually, I joined Shell straight out of university. I, I joined them because they sponsored my university education. What did you study? Um, back in Malaysia, I studied engineering. And I had a contract to serve the company for five years after I graduated. Well, I did the five years and then added another 16 or something. Um, and it was a very different time when I joined in 1999. Um, different world. I must say that the company is actually very forward-looking. They were installing solar panels on oil rigs like 40 years ago. They went into the hydrogen business about 20 years ago. Um, so over time, I think the biggest change that I've seen in, in Shell is that now the company is positively acknowledging its role in the energy transition and that was maybe about 10-15 years ago at most. Um, I think it's also quite common that in large corporations of 50 or 100,000 employees, the strategic thinking and scenario planning happens really way in advance of things becoming mainstream. And Shell is no different. It has the resources, the capabilities to 
peer into the future. And often they're more knowledgeable than government officials or even regulators. I know you work in the civil service, but you know that there's a lot of expertise in big corporates. But when it comes to a, a shift in the company or a real change, I think that happens when these issues start becoming the day job of more people and not just the top 1% in a company. It has to become your day job of 20, 30% of the company. That's when you start to feel that real shift. Do you think there's a lack of appreciation for that from the outside, looking at like, like public conversation versus obviously you in the company 15 years ago, seeing the transformation and the conversations begin to shift and, and look forward. Do you think there's a bit of a, uh, an asymmetry of information there? Definitely. Um, but I think nobody who's outside the company will have the patience to listen to the history lesson. People want to know, so what's happened? What action have you taken? What's the impact? What's the result? That's just real life. So I think it is quite hard to change a perception of a brand or a company. Um, I think it's just important to recognize that that perception exists for a reason. There's you know, no smoke without fire. So there are things that companies have done or messages that they have put out into the public domain that led to the perception it has today. We have to take, company has to take responsibility for that. If you think back to your, your early days at Shell, what are some of the things that you think, uh, obviously I know you mentioned solar panels on oil rigs and, and other initiatives like that, but are there any kind of specific things that stand out where you think the, the public would be surprised by just how forward thinking they were before all of this modern, I mean, I know it's been a conversation for a long time with climate, but it seems to have massively ramped up in the last five years. Yeah, well, I, I don't know of specific projects, but the company was involved in solar, they were involved in wind, they were involved in making fuels out from algae. Um, so there was, there was lots of investment put into these places. Um, and it was, I guess you could argue, a little early. There wasn't the return from those investments. And so a lot of that was pulled back or stopped or paused and that now it's come back in it's it's a great time now but people do see it as why why weren't you doing this why weren't you expanding this 20 years ago well the returns weren't there and you know you and i are both we've got a salary we get money we want to invest our money we want it to grow so if you're an investor you put your money into a company you probably don't want to wait 20 years for it to give you a return so that's just a reality of the capital markets today. I think there's a there's a lack of appreciation for like global economics and like shareholder interests, I guess, in that scenario, where obviously it's like, yeah, why weren't you doing this initiative, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, they wouldn't have seen any money whatsoever. And that's not really how things work. Um, one of the things I've noted down here is, is kind of, as far as I see it with this whole like sustainability conversation, there's two voices on each end of the spectrum one of them are saying you know companies these these big companies are greenwashing and they want to go to the extreme of like climate alarmism and just stop oil disrupting everything and everything that we see today that, that really care passionately and they're almost anti all these companies and then on the other end of the spectrum we see 
these people that complain about big tech and the government taking away our rights and they want to be able to drive petrol cars and do what they want without all these regulations. Where do you think the the nuance is there, like in, in, in all of this noise to appreciate the work that these big companies are doing to try and advance sustainability? Well, that's, I think there is truth in both sides, but neither one has the solution on its own. And, and that's where I think drawing these binary conclusions is not really helpful to drive action. I think it has to be a coming together of where, where do we find compromises? Where are the steps we can take today, even though they may not be the perfect step that everyone or, or that one side wants? So where is that happy medium we can take today? Where is that next year? Because that would have shifted every year. And greenwashing itself has become quite an overused term, I find. Uh, I mean, it was meant to point out false advertising or claims that you can't substantiate. But I know having done this myself when I was in Shell, I had the responsibility of looking at marketing materials, product claims that we make. And you probably wouldn't believe me if I told you the hundreds of hours that go into defending each and every statement internally, making sure we've got the science to defend each and every bit. I think it's also a nuance that's particular to some industries. I mean, look at the cosmetics industry. How often do you see a statement, eight out of 10 people agree that this improved whatever? This sector, the energy sector, would never be able to use that, that kind of eight out of 10 people. It would need to be, you know, 95% out of a million people or something really to the extreme. So it is, it is also, I think, um, just a more sensitive sector that Shell, Shell and other energy companies are in. Uh, something I've thought about off the top of my head, off the, off the back of thinking about, and it's kind of playing devil's advocate because it's not something I particularly agree with. But if you have someone like a, a Greta Thunberg saying that we can't fantasize over this eternal economic growth and we need to take like this extreme action, how do you engage in conversation with someone that, or with her or with people like her, with an appreciation of like, that's just not how global economics works. And like you say with Shell, obviously there needs to be some level of like, okay, fantastic, we'll make these sustainable changes, but we can't go bankrupt and fold as a company in order to do that. And we have to like, ultimately have the responsibility to, to shift internally because we can't just withdraw from the market. People are still gonna need everything that we do. Like we can't just stop using phones and laptops and everything that you know is derived from the, the work that Shell does. How, how do you how do you engage in that that kind of conversation? Well, I think first there needs to be an openness on both sides to have that engagement. And if one comes into that um, discussion saying it's got to be this is this is the only thing I'm going to believe in, then I think it's very hard. But if there is openness to engage, I think there will there will be a good debate. I mean, essentially, it's a question of innovation or deprivation for for want of a better word and, and I think it should be an end 
not an all. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I mean, deprivation in, in itself is not a great word, is it? Um, I, I do believe we can all be more conscious about the way we consume things to voluntarily choose to be more simple in our way of life. Um, and we talked about it earlier when I, when I said my mother used every bit of the chicken that she would, she would buy. Um, now convenience has taken priority and there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't believe that deprivation to the point of limiting access to resources or slowing economic progress would have a big impact on the world. I think the breakthroughs come when you have innovation, a forward-looking approach using technology, using creativity. I mean, it's innovation that gives us renewable energy and, and green transportation, not, not deprivation. So I think commercial outcomes will always be um, a reality of the way capital markets work today. And we shouldn't even be shy about using the word commercial or profit because a company that profits is good for society. Nothing can scale if it's not profitable. So, um, so I do think there's a conversation to be had in short. You've mentioned both supply side and demand side changes and, and shifts, both at an individual level all the way up to the, the company, the side of shell. Um, in your experience and, uh, given what you know now, who do you think in the conversations that you've been having and the talks you do and kind of things uh, is the most open to that conversation? Is it the the individual or is it the, the people working in these companies are actually way more forward thinking and open to this nuanced discussion? Well, I don't think I've seen a big difference one, one way or another. I I think people in big companies may have to follow a company line when they speak professionally, but they may not believe it personally, um, or, or they may. So I think it, you can't draw um, a sort of, I, I don't see a statistical kind of, you know, sway either side. Reflecting on specifics then, like trying to look at some of the initiatives that Shell and more broadly, you know, you see like even with like F1, this thing about going net zero and uh, 2030 targets. Um, for the listeners who maybe don't have an appreciation for this conversation and they're just coming at it from the first time, um, what's it all about? What are we trying to, to aim here? And kind of what's Shell's role in trying to get to net zero and meeting these kind of climate targets? Ooh, a lot of questions in there. Um, so climate science is a quite specialist area so I won't claim to be a climate scientist but if you probably think of it in terms of a bucket um, with a tap that's flowing into it and a hole that's drawing it out um, what we are pouring into it from the tap is the emissions that we are emitting from everything from breathing from manufacturing from burning fuel any of those things and the hole at the bottom of the bucket is the rate at which that emission can be absorbed back by the earth. At the moment, we're overflowing because we are just pouring in from the tap way more than can be absorbed. So net zero is just a state when 
the amount we're pouring in equals the amount that can be absorbed. That's a start. We have to get there. But that will not be enough because we have overflowed. It's, it's been overflowing for a long time. So we have to get to a state when we are actually even you know, turning off that tap or going much less. So even net zero is not an end state. It's a transition state. It's, it's one we have to reach, but it's step one of a, of a longer journey. And Shell's role in that, just like any big company in the energy space, it's about transitioning from fossil fuel to renewable fuels, if I kind of put it very simply. And that itself is not easy because the world has gotten used to fossil fuel. We have pipes that carry it. We have ships that carry it. We have machines that burn it. Changing all of that to renewables and then having the generation of a renewable power is that's why they call it a transition. It will take decades. We need it to go as fast as we can. But at the same time, when you turn on your light switch, you expect your light to come on. Nobody's going to you know, accept that there isn't enough power. So that balancing act is a very delicate one, not just for one company, but for countries, for, yeah, for, for societies. Appreciate. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you know how that's like measured? Like how 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 are people like quantifying this kind of net zero thing and knowing at what stage we're actually hitting the targets on a on a global scale, right? Because it's not just a case of okay, one company or even one country. It's like a mass. Okay, it's a global thing. Indeed, um, everything is boiled down to the measure of carbon dioxide, so tons of carbon dioxide em- emitted, and even other gases that are emitted are kind of translated into a unit of CO2. Um, So that's the primary measure. There are lots of other things that we should be reducing, but that's the common language um, in climate change and in um, sustainability conversations. And so we've, we've talked about a few of the initiatives that Shell might have been putting in place, you know, way before this conversations were going more and more mainstream. Um, But what are some of the ways that you see these days where companies are making use of technology and innovating and trying to move the needle forward when it comes to achieving these targets? Oh, there's, there's lots. And I think there's even more that we have never heard of before. So some of the basic ones would be switching to renewable power, making sure your heating is a renewable source of heating. Um, but battery technology is an area that's really accelerating solid state batteries and super capacitors that can store power more efficiently and for longer. So that's one area I think will will really um, kind of explode over the next couple of years. I think um, cellular agriculture is probably another one. I don't know how much of this has become mainstream yet. I think it's still quite early days. But the ability to make food to make meat and dairy products and and eggs and stuff that has protein using cell cultures in a lab without needing to rear cattle or to slaughter lambs. So that reduced environmental impact will be immense. Um, You imagine the cost of food could reduce um, making protein affordable and accessible. 
And even without these kind of newfangled technology, rediscovering old technologies will also be um, a big thing, just like self-healing concrete. I read about that a couple of weeks ago. Concrete that can repair cracks on its own. I mean, that's that kind of blows my mind. Uh, and apparently the ancient Romans were using materials that had that kind of ability. So you know, just think how much better buildings would be if we if we use that. Um, or finding new uses for traditional materials like sheep's wool being used in insulation. So I think there's lots of different ways that, that um, businesses will be able to innovate. Do you think in any way there's a conflict between the, the way you describe capital markets and the profit incentive versus this aim for sustainability and for things that actually last and can self self heal and stuff just because i'm just reflecting back on the old um what was it the light bulb cartel of like over 100 years ago where obviously the, the light bulb manufacturers come together and they artificially lower the duration that a light bulb can can stay alive otherwise because the companies needed them to keep purchasing otherwise the companies would go bust do you think there's like a conflict of interest there or is it just on companies to make products that maybe have like retainer monthly income or stuff like that well i think at the heart of it it's about giving customers a product or service that they really want and if they really want a light bulb that busts every every week then then you'll be a successful business but i don't think customers want that um, so I do think that the case for sustainability and the case for business, they do go hand in hand if you can really find that consumer need that you are filling and matching it with your own competitive advantage. It's really the fundamentals of business, but you know it's, so it's not a new thing. And even shareholder value, it's meant to be long-term value of a company right? It's the sum of all the company's future cash flows. And if a company isn't resilient to the future, to, resilient to climate change, then it should not have a high value. So I, I do believe that um, shareholders who look for sustainable companies will find them in the ones that are meeting customer needs. Flipping it from companies back to back to individuals again, um, why is it, do you think, that some individuals, uh, young and old, are being resistant to making the changes that they need to in their in their personal lives? The kind of things that you described at the beginning of the podcast of just being more frugal and like maximizing the chicken, for example, rather than continually kind of harvesting and buying from shops, right? Like being more sustainable in that manner. Why do you think people are, are resistant or or even just ignorant to that? I actually see a lot of people who... Um, are adapting to that, especially the younger people. That's it's the number one kind of priority in their minds. It's climate change. It's much more than my generation. So I'm actually quite encouraged by what I see. Where it where people are resistant to it, it's because probably they don't see how it would affect them in their lifetime. But I think that is changing. And I, and I feel it will even get um, more adoption from the younger people in the way they live their lives. Do, do you fear, though, as well, like because of the, the global nature of the problem, 
and the fact that you know it's the wrong mentality to have but some people you know it's like i'm only one person what 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 impact can can one person make on a global problem but actually someone takes all of that kind of responsibility onto them and then they almost get this kind of like i think there's a new new term in psychology of like climate anxiety where someone is like so worried about everything that they do to contribute to the problem like how do you engage in that kind of uh that kind of person with where they're at and how do you like calm them down and say actually you know what it's a collective it's a collective thing here guys like don't worry so much about you but in your influence you can hopefully guide people towards being more sustainable well i i think nothing of let me put it this way any extreme behaviors not healthy in anything if you're an extreme um you know you you can relate it to eating habits, exercising, any facets of your life, extremism is usually not healthy. So I think this kind of climate anxiety that you express is just another aspect of being quite extreme. Um, so I think it is helpful to just be moderate in your life. I've, that was how I was brought up by my parents, everything in moderation. Um, and, and I think that just leads to a more balanced life. I would say though that I don't know the statistics, the data around how prevalent climate anxiety is. Um, I would say there's a bigger proportion of people who need slightly more anxiety um, and to be encouraged to go that way because like you said, it is it's a global problem. It's an it's an interconnected problem. It's got no borders. So every little bit helps and and yeah and and, if, and it's also a responsibility that we've all got you, you and, and that's spot on and something that i i definitely need to reflect on and um continue to do when, when i have conversations with people because it's, it's so true about like trying to find that balance between not being not being anxious enough right and actually going look guys like this is what the data is saying this is what the companies are saying we need to be completely aware of these things um but as someone living Myself in the UK, and maybe many of the listeners are are also from the UK, but wherever you're at, because it's a global problem and some countries and some companies obviously emit more than others, how do you take on that responsibility of doing your little bit without just looking at, I don't know, I mean, I saw something where like if the UK like sank overnight and didn't exist anymore, it would, there's only like 1% of the global problem. So like, how do you, how do you account for that and, and make sure that like, companies and countries who are really almost doing doing the worst for the climate make sure that they do their fair share and take responsibility because it would be an un, un, unfair competitive thing as well right within business if one company is being really proactive and the other just continues to continues to to pollute well i think that overweights the duty part of the equation right at the start i was um, telling you that at least for me it's there is the duty side of things but there's also the opportunity side of things and when it comes to businesses and what um, UK is doing for example there is an opportunity um, for the UK to grow with investments coming into the country with tech being developed here with com companies listing on the London Stock Exchange so these are all opportunities um, for the UK and then I think it is up to really governments to then put in place fiscal policies to level the playing field so for example there are 
products that are imported into UK or into the EU um, that may come from a third country where they may not practice as much of the you know, energy efficiency or um, the carbon regulation. So there is now a kind of cross-border adjustment mechanism that will come in place, if I'm not mistaken, in 2026, that will put a tax on the products that come in from those countries, trying to level the playing field. Um, and at the same time, it's also an opportunity for companies in Asia or China or other parts of the world. They could see this as an opportunity. If they take steps in the next two to three years, they will then have an advantage when this mechanism comes into force. It's like you said earlier that the sustainability and the business incentive actually is way more intertwined than people think. They're not antithetical. Like actually, if you if you ensure that that is the most long-term uh, lucrative like solution and aim for a business, then they're going to be wanting to do that anyway, right? Um, and there's various policies. I, I remember studying in economics, you know, like things like tradable pollution permits. And obviously you mentioned like a tax on, on low, um, on, on com- countries who emit more emissions and then trading with countries that are emitting less emissions and then trying to kind of bridge that gap, right? And I think all these economic strings that we can pull on a global sense it really fascinates me because obviously I'm, I'm so out, I'm so out of that world. I study it in a textbook and, you know, you spent the last sort of 10 to 15 years pondering over these things and uh, driving the conversation. And obviously you have far more of a, a greater awareness um, of it. Well, there's one thing, Zach, which I'm not sure whether your listeners will be interested in, but um, you, you work in something to do with statistics. Or yeah, math? I work for the for the ONS. So, yeah. OK, um, well, I'm not a mathematician myself, but there is a mathematical calculation, a kind of minimax utilitarian calculation that models the good. And there is also a a calculation that models the right. And if you extend those calculations out into infinity, you know, sum from one to infinity, those two curves actually meet. And while it's a mathematical concept, I think the philosophical aspect of it is that if you think about the good thing to do and the right thing to do, um, and you take a time frame which is infinity, they are the same thing. They are only different if you take a short-term view. What do you mean specifically by good and right in this context? What might be um, good to do today? And... If you take a short-term perspective of what you can get in return today, that may be different from what is right. But if you take away that short-term view and if you really extend that thinking into the long term, there's never a real, a real difference. So there's only one definition really of the right thing to do when you look at the long term. Of course, companies do not deal with hypothetical concepts of infinity they have to survive today in order to have a future. So that is, of course, the challenge. Um, but if you are guided by what consumers want, what societies value, you will be delivering value to your shareholders as well. It's all about a common theme in this conversation. It's all about that balance. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just like finding the nuance, kind of where you, where you, where you draw the line on these things. Um, do you think actually reflecting on the way more generally I think I I see a problem in society is that people are very uh, 
geared towards instant gratification. We can have everything now and we're very like kind of in the moment. And obviously that's the that's the good stuff now, but it might not be the right stuff for the long term. So I get does, do you think that that also plays out in like individual consumer decision making? Uh for example, even when you know considering purchasing the plant-based or cooking more plant-based which we know is better for the planet but actually they want to have the good thing of having the the mcdonald's at the drive-through right like do you think that plays out as well in the in the individual i think that does play out especially especially at this well let me take a step back five years ago if you were a vegetarian or vegan i'm sorry you didn't get lots of good stuff yeah. <laughs> people didn't offer it, right? But yeah. now I notice when I go into a restaurant and my friend says they're a vegetarian, they get a better meal than I do. So I think um, that choice of having something which is tastes really good versus being good for me or good for the planet, again, that comes to the role of companies. Because as a business, if you know your customer well, you will know that is their challenge. They want to eat healthily but the offer is not great. So there's your business opportunity because where there is a problem, there is an opportunity. So it's just a matter of time that that gap will be, will be closed. And I think now it's, it's really closing. I love how you can plug that maths straight into individual decision-making with that stuff. And as someone who's been, I've been vegan since 2016, <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. Uh, bringing my own pot of awful non-dairy cheese to pizza express and giving it to the chef versus now you kind of go in and they've got the whole menu that's all kind of laid out for you and i think that's a clear example of where companies are moving in the right direction so that you can make the right decision and also a decision that's good for you because you actually enjoy the food <laughs> and it's actually what, what you want right exactly. um how has uh becoming a non-executive director been uh with shell obviously you've kind of coming through your career and really scaling up and making a uh, I don't, know, I don't know, making name for yourself, but actually like, you know, grounding yourself within this company and being innovative, actually shifting into this role. Um, what does that look like professionally and personally for you? Well, after a very long executive career and now leaving the company and going out into the non-executive world, the change is a big one because, you know, you're quite removed from day-to-day -day running of the business. Um, NEDs or the NEDs, um, they actually do very little, if I say it facetiously. It is, let's look at strategy, governance, a company's purpose. They reward executives. Um, they appoint executives, but they're not involved in the rest of it. So it is quite a shift mentally as well, because I'm, I'm someone who's quite action-oriented. I do want to deliver... Um, a result and with a non-executive um, in a non-executive capacity you take different ways to deliver the result you coach um, some of the executive managers you ask the difficult questions um, you bring in the outside perspective into the company and that's what that's the result that's the, um, the impetus for people to really think about decisions and, and that's where you get the results so it's a, it's a very big shift, um, and it's also an area which is, um, I would say, quite highly competitive. Um, it's a very competitive area. There are 
very experienced um, people on company boards. So what most companies do like to look for now is a good mix on their board. Because if your role is to ask the tough questions, and if everybody's asking the same question, that sort of dilutes the value. So a company does need different perspectives um, to help them make robust decisions. Mm. And do you, do you think that um, that place of like different perspectives is is even more important given the the particular role that you're in? Like obviously, looking at Shell and sustainability, it's very fast pace fast moving forward and also like you're having people from different areas of the world and different backgrounds you think it's particularly important because of that well i'm not a non-executive in shell i, I left sure. shell and now i'm look, looking into non-executive positions in other companies um i think the the time that we're living in now makes the role of a board even more important than it could have been before because the pace of change is just so high and the risks can be immense. So if any company is not looking into the risks and the opportunities that climate change is bringing, then then they've got a problem. Um, so I think um, it is just not just for a company in the energy sector, but all companies that are affected by it. And so I guess the quite natural question on from that is in the position that you find yourself now you're obviously able to see the bigger picture and you're able to obviously almost consult these companies in this non-executive role given your experience in how to move forward and how to adapt and overcome the challenges that are on the horizon so what do you think personally the next five ten however many whatever the time horizon is what are the what are the biggest challenges and what do you think are the biggest uh, initiatives that are going to take place over the coming years um you mean generally or for particular sectors both <laughs> however you'd like to take the question to be honest well i do think climate justice in in all its nuance so it's not just about cleaner energy but it's affordable energy it's um reliable energy all those aspects will be a critical thing um for the next few years I also think there is a coming together of business and politics. So I never like to talk about politics on a, on a in a public forum like this, but when I first started to work in my professional life, I was always told that business and politics are completely separate. And I think that's that's good as a rule. Now, 22, 25 years on, I think there is much more of um, interrelationship between the two. Politics defines so much about whether a particular business can succeed. Um, it defines so much about whether there is stability in a country and instability is usually not good for business. So for a, can a company really say, I have no opinion? on politics. I think that is getting harder and harder to to follow that line. Um, I would never advocate that a business becomes political. I think they should they should never do that. But boards do need to have for themselves a very clear articulation of their own business values as well as what fairness means to them. 
And fairness can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but every company needs to define that very clearly. I've mentioned this concept on so many podcasts. I think it's so interesting that it comes up in so many different conversations, but it's the concept of uh, post-materialism. I don't know if you're you're familiar with it. Uh, sort of this idea of moving past material objects and people's primary concerns. Now those things are um, under wraps, turns to values and actually how people's purchasing decisions are not just what they need, but what they want to kind of almost vote for with their money, right? They kind of follow the companies that they feel that are aligned with their values. And I think that really speaks to what you've just mentioned there about businesses not becoming political, but being politically sensitive and having a clear kind of mission statement and values that people know that when they're putting their money to that company, it's going to something that they actually believe in in, in, in a value. And I think that's something that's uh, important. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so I guess to to wrap it up and kind of ground it in what someone can actually take from this conversation and, and action on obviously one of the things is to put their money in places that they they believe and they you know with their decisions they they advance what, what they want to see in the world um, but what are some of the other areas where you think individuals can take steps to be more uh sensitive to the climate and responsibility well i think they can do an assessment of the impact that their life has on the environment. How, where are there opportunities to be more sustainable themselves? I think they can, if they have children, they can engage in those conversations early to bring up the family in, in those values. Um, if they are leading companies or teams, there is a big opportunity for them to then shape the strategy for whatever they are doing accordingly. Um, so I think there are, there are lots of opportunities um, to really understand how this ecosystem works and their role in it. But one thing we didn't talk much about, but is perhaps something that in this final kind of message to people, they can really consider is that climate justice and social justice also go very much together. And, and so for each individual, if you are working in a team or you're working in a company or if you're working for yourself, um, how do you interact with your neighbor, customers, community? Um, are you offering opportunities to everybody equally? Do you have the right diversity in the people around you to help you in your decision making? Those are also things that everybody can take action on now. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate the interesting angle that you come at this conversation from, because as, as I mentioned in the podcast, you know, as being a vegan, part of that is my my passion for sustainability. I think it's really interesting to hear that perspective from someone who's obviously been on the inside of uh, what the at a very surface level will be like, oh, it's the enemy, it's the big oil, but actually, like the there's so much innovation and stuff that you don't see, and actually, it's been fascinating to peel some of those conversations back. And hopefully, this podcast isn't the end of the discussion, but it's just the beginning for people to to go away and reflect on and, and take action on. So I appreciate your time and. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. The questions were interesting. Appreciate your time as well. If if people want to follow you, if people want to get in touch with anything, uh, where can they do so? They can find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only one Vicky Boyton Lee, perhaps on on LinkedIn. Sure. 
um, yeah, and I look forward to any questions and, and furthering the discussion. Cool. And that will obviously be linked in the show notes below. All right. Thank you for listening.